You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to Collective Cafe To Go. This is the podcast version of the Collective Cafe. Now, the Collective Cafe happens every single weekday, Monday through Friday, from 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in Alpha Collective's Discord server discord.gg forward slash alpha collective it is free it always will be free there are no strings there is no bait and switch if you like to listen live and even participate come onto stage comment in our back chat you can do that whether you're on the treadmill getting the kids ready for school getting yourself ready for work commuting into the big bad city or maybe just even commuting from your bedroom into your home office. On Monday, we manifest. On Tuesday, we talk thought leadership. On Wednesday, we have guests take the stage, almost like an open mic. On Thursday, we do live book reads and discussions. And then on Friday, it's No Agenda Friday, where there is no agenda. Start your day off on the right foot, on the front foot, with virtual coffee, with the collective cafe, where we mastermind, we manifest, we collaborate, we help one another at the business of Web3 or anything else that intersects, whether it's culture, collaboration, creativity, innovation, disruption. So give us a subscribe if you're listening on the podcast or take one day. Remember, it is a safe, welcoming space and you will never, ever be put on the spot. This is the Collective Cafe to go. Good morning, Bez. How are you? Good. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm. I'm good. I still have to adjust the volume. Um, now I see what's happened. I thought maybe the volume. Uh, it was. It was the volume of the actual um, audio track, but it's really the volume of the music that increases and kind of drowns out the voice. So I, I need to make that adjustment today. Uh, yesterday, the goal was to have the show up within 10 minutes, but my computer crashed, and uh, which seems to be happening a lot these days. I think my hard drive is full. and uh, But, you know, it's nice to get the whole show up within, like, minutes. So, mm-hmm. yes, yesterday, I, exper- uh, I experimented with doing the show without the show notes, and then going back... Mm-hmm. And, and then checking later to see if the show notes downloaded, and they did. So, um, like Memento Mori. Um, so, the goal becomes, now, can I get the show up? The answer is yes, I can get the show up within 10 minutes. So, for people that I think are, um, you know, want this as part of their daily commute, they can probably already get it on their iPhones by 9.15, 9.30 in the morning, which is kind of very cool. And obviously, depending on where they are, if they're on the West Coast, it's it's even more perfect. And um, and then and then at some point, maybe a few hours later, I, I just update the metadata and and put in the show notes. So that's kind of cool, um, and I like it. It's 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 not too much work, and it's also something that I think a VA could probably do very very easily. There's really no there's no um, you know, there's no uh, subject matter expertise required other than just being able to uh, convert the files, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, anyway, uh, today is Thursday. Um, we're back uh, on Super Bosses, and um, I'm gonna uh, turn it over to you. Is this is this part two or part three, Bez? Uh, this is part two. Uh, the, today we're gonna cover 
chapters uh, two, three, and four. Um, the best two, uh, you know, obviously I can't go deep on each chapter, but I'm going to share a little bit from each chapter. And because I'm here and I'm plugged in, uh, it's going to be slightly different. Um, I'll be on stage with you, but I'm going to go on mute. Sure. And, um, you know, I was thinking it's probably a really nice idea, um, but it depends on who's delivering the actual content, whether you want to pause. I mean, you could do it anyway, right? You could pause after five times, you know, if, you could pause every minute if you want and, and invite questions or or feedback. People can ask questions themselves. Um, or you might just want to break them down into little pots and after 10 or 15, that's what I think you've been doing. You've been like doing a session yeah. and then pausing and asking if they're questions. Yeah, I, I want to break it up because I want uh, it to be um, a good dialogue. Hold on, let me grab a, a swig of water here. Uh, but yeah, I um, there'll be areas that you know I'll um, I'll share, and then I'll want people to give their feedback. So please, um, we you know Chris, I'm I'm going to put him up there, invite him to to come up, uh, and then. Uh, he can join the conversation as we move along the three chapters. So, okay, so um, so Super Bosses. Um, this is the book by Sidney Finkelstein. Um, it's uh, Super Bosses: How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. And in today's section, um, we're going to go over a little bit um, into chapters. Uh, we'd cover the inner flaps. We cover the, uh, the intro or forward and we're covering, and we covered chapter one. So today we're chaptering two, three, and four. So let me find my starting point and, uh, we'll get started. So chapter two, that's titled, um, getting people who get it. So what I want to read is just to start off is the little story that they share at the beginning of this is, um, and they sort of uh, map out how, um, you know, sort of from the beginning, you know, they say, Hey, you show up for job interview. It's a management position, but not a high level one. Uh, while you're waiting, someone drops down in the chair besides you. And they ask, are you here about the job? You look over and you're started, startled to see the legendary head of the company. As you sit there, speechless, barely managing to nod, he asks you about one of the more challenging issues facing the industry. You force yourself to focus and quickly relay some thoughts on the subject. He asks you to elaborate, so you lay out your thinking in detail. He spots the weak points in your argument, and you acknowledge them but explain why you are taking the, the position you described anyways. As the conversation builds, you become so caught up in the subject that you almost forget whom you're talking to. Every so often, the discussion veers off some unlikely direction as he asks you a question about something barely connected to what you were saying, your personal taste, your teenage years, your hobbies. But then he steers the conversation back to the subject at hand. Yet you constantly feel off balance, but he seems so interested in everything you're saying, you can't help but enjoy the back and forth. Without warning, the living legend gets up, I gotta run. When human resources people call you in, tell them I've just hired you. Pretty strange, isn't it? You know, the leader in this scenario doesn't look at your resume or other records. He didn't want to know about your most recent position or qualifications. He didn't ask what sort of job you were looking for or your salary requirements. He didn't say what he was hiring you to do. He only seemed interested in your thoughts about an issue that currently concerned him. A few other questions he asked appeared completely random. How can such a hiring process possibly work? It goes against everything corporate recruiters know and do. Senior business leaders aren't supposed to waste their time hiring lower-level personnel. Vetting potential hires is a routine, tedious, and time-consuming process. 
it doesn't require unique skills of an industry legend. Besides, human resource experts have made hiring into something of a science. They have reliable tests, techniques for sorting and testing. Um, excuse me here. I just lost my place here. And testing applicants, analyzing employment histories and work experience and evaluating personalities and work styles. Everything they do is systematic and their procedures serve to take the guesswork out of hiring. In modern human resource management, there is no need for personal intuitive judgment. But for supervisors, is there? You know, you have to ask that question, right? And um, they go on to say, you'll find, you'll get an earful to the contrary. Supervisors might might favor people with advanced degrees and other formal credentials. They might employ some of the tests and psychological evaluations popular among human resources specialists. At the same time, they complement those rote tools with more creative styles of talent spotting. The idea of looking for recruits who are already doing exactly the same kind of job and who will keep indefinitely in the job would probably never occur to a super boss. In fact, if a prospective recruit has any qualities that would fit neatly into a traditional hiring criteria, it's almost guaranteed that a super boss will pay little attention to that benchmark. When it comes to hiring, Super bosses make their own rules. They forge their own paths. They sniff out promising employees in the craziest of places. And the people they get are unlike any other. They're engaged. They're brilliant. They're creative. The raw materials they may, the raw material that may well be the staff of the future superstars. Um, so I'm going to just stop there for a second because, you know, uh, you know, I am in human resources. My specialty is, and my jam has been recruiting and, um, he, he is true. You know, we, we run around trying to make a selection of science, but it's in, it really sounds like anything but a science to a super boss. So, and, and you know, Joseph, any thoughts on what I just uh, I read? I mean, you're, you're, you're a CMO type of person. Um, any of that resonates with you? I mean, not, not just any, but every. Uh, you know, I had, um, I had Rand Fishkin on the show yesterday, did a, did a pre-taping. It was, um, it actually went in a very weird direction because... I think you know who Rand is, and I'm sure you've heard yeah. of Moz. Um, and it mm-hmm. went down this personal and beautiful and 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 emotional space where he spoke about his regrets with Moz, and um, and just how he how he didn't trust his gut, and how he didn't make the right decision, and uh, and how much he regrets it, and how he went into depression. Um, I never expected it. The goal wasn't to go down that path, but we, you know, we brought it back as well. And um, one of the discussions came, you know, centered around this idea of of first timers. In fact, I said to him, "You know this because you listen to the show a lot." I always come up and I tell tell my guests what their next book is going to be called. I said, "I said, Rand, your next book is going to be called First Timers." Uh, the story about how most of the successes, the greatest successes we know, come from people doing something for the first time. I said, if you can prove it. I said, because if you can prove it, and I suspect it's true, um, you this could be one of the best-selling books of all time. Because the message behind it, essentially, is about innocence and curiosity and ignorance, blissful ignorance, uh, he even came up with a term, I think he called it, um, what did he call it? Uh, I want to read it to you. He called it um, competent humility, <laughs> you know, and, mm-hmm. and, but the idea to me, a lot of it comes down to nature versus nurture or, or maybe attitude versus aptitude. The fact that when you're hiring someone, 
and and listen, I mean, I, I could I could talk about this for 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 a year. This whole idea right. of you know how investors, VCs invest in the person, not the idea. I think the essence around it is, first of all, we have to deconstruct and we have to be able to say, uh, let's talk about college. Why do we look at grades and GPA? Why do we look at SAT and standardized testing? Why do we look at all of this? Because there is no easy way, there is no efficient way to you know, sort the wheat from the chaff or at least attempt to. When you have 10,000 applicants, how on earth do you find the diamond in the rough? There is no way. So the only way to do that is to, it's like cutting a deck of cards and then cutting it again and then cutting it again and then cutting it again until you get to a manageable point where then maybe you look at things like the essay and you can spend a bit more time and the letters of recommendation and ultimately even bring them in for an interview. So imagine Mm -hmm. we're at that interview phase Imagine that this super boss, this person who walked in, the, the, the rock star, the owner of the company, the, the founder, sitting next to this person, the schmuck, you know, so to speak, you know, ready mm-hmm. to, and, 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 and they got hired maybe from just being themselves and, you know, and being able to, and, and, and you must imagine that in that moment, that person is damn good at being able to trust their gut and make that selection. Clearly, they're empowered to. I mean, it's such a beautiful story, but it opens up a, uh, I don't want to say Pandora's box, but it opens up just a a myriad of sub-strains and tangents and and beautiful discussion points. Uh, To me, and I'll, I'll kind of like throw this back to you, I mean, ultimately what it comes down to is making the right decision. How do you know you made the right decision? How do you know that you, that, that, you know, that, I mean, Let's put it this way: the wrong decision, the wrong hiring decision, can have massive re- repercussions. the The right decision can 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 take the company to the next level, and the wrong decision can sink the company. And so, you know, I, like again, I could unpack this forever. This this rock star, the story you told. What if they undermined their HR person? You know, what what if they created a political Firestorm, this is more likely the scenario, right? Or minefield. What if that decision was the wrong decision and this person turns out to be an absolute nightmare? But on the flip side, we come back to this, you know, amazing story. Hey, you've just been, you go into HR and tell them you've just been hired. That's the romance. That's what we want to believe. That's what we need to believe. We want those kinds of stories. We want to know that someone can see us for who we are and what we can do, not what we have done. Because as I always say, if you're hiring me, if you're hiring me based on what I've done in the past, then why am I not doing that still? If you're the kind of person that keeps talking about all the people you've worked with and all your clients and all your past achievements, why are you not doing that now? Why are you doing something else? I am a romantic and an idealist. I, I mean, even when I, when I talk about my show, Bez, you know, I, mm-hmm. I want someone to hire me, to syndicate me, to buy my show, not because of my views and my subscribes and my, and my stats, but because of the quality of the show, because, of, because you should be able to see me and hear me and, and, and say, wow, this guy is talented or this guy is not talented. And the better you are and the more of a super boss you are, the more natural and the more instinctual and the more, um, you know, the more accurate you're going to be in making those decisions. So it's an amazing story that you just told. And I think that even if we can't get there in our lifetimes, we have to strive to get to that point. Maybe we call it non-traditional hiring. Maybe we call it trusting our gut. Maybe it comes down to recognizing that if we are hiring people solely on the basis of their resume, their GPA, you know, and what they've done in the past, we are completely mm-hmm. eliminating, A, what they can do in the future, and more importantly, their potential, what they might yet be capable of doing with the right training and development and incentives and inspiration and empowerment. And um, so, right. you know, as I said, I have a lot of thoughts. 
No, no, no. This is good. This is what this is meant to do. Um, it's interesting what you're saying. I'm going to share something with you here is, um, so, uh, you know, we were talking about the, the chess, Panese, um, that awesome chef earlier in the book. Um, and this lady Kelly was going through the final test, you know, cooking for the, the, that famous person and their mother, uh, just two, two seats. And, um, she goes, you know, she'd been working on the lunch days in advance, writing out menu ideas, forging in the market for the choicest ingredients, blah, 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 you know, to to make this um, uh, just awesome meal for, for the legend, right? And, you know, the, you know, they even say the whether you work for the legend or you brush by the legend can benefit you in your career. She goes, uh, she had the fortune to work for this super boss, you know, as a culinary, uh, she came in highly qualified, but she said she had to, you know, she had lost that imagination. She said, um, by working for, for this person, um, in, you know, 1999, uh, she won the, the James Beard award for best regional chef in the Northeast. Um, she went on to open these highly regarded restaurants in Maine, Florida, and Arizona, and all called Primo, and all emphasizing fresh local farm-to-table cooking. In in 2013, she won the second James Beard Award, the first chef ever to win the Best Chef Northeast Award twice. And she says today she looks back at Ches Panese as a turning point in career. She said it, it basically allowed her to come into her own as a chef. I didn't have a style when I got there. And, and then she goes, by the time I left, I did. It was simplicity, seasonality, and freshness. And she said, I sort of felt like I was, I'm passing the torch from Ches Panese, you know, so in, and they go on into the rest of this talk, uh, chapter talking about that something special, you know, that what these super bosses seek and they look for, or they have that nose for, you know. Um, and you said you'll find that in any industry, you know, um, unusual qualities that most of these super bosses don't even, um, you know, think about, or sometimes they don't even care about. Um, they say super bosses just uh, don't just. Wait, supervisor <laughs> just doesn't want just a candidate who has the skills. Um, they want to enable them to to just reach new heights, you know. And she said, if a candidate seems to have the what the supervisor is after, he won't hesitate to override human resource specialists. The supervisor's quest for super, superstars will override everything else. So they they search for those qualities that basically they they have that something special and only the super boss will recognize that i mean they show up to you may be at a cocktail party and start talking to someone you don't know and maybe they're a legend in their industry um they say um what does getting it mean and um one thing they, they look for, super bosses, is unusual intelligence. Um, they say Norman Brinker believed that the most important part of running a restaurant chain was hiring the smartest possible people. Ralph Lauren looked for a kind of fashion intelligence. He wanted everyone who worked for him, even the most menial role, to have a fashion sense and be able to say something interesting about clothes. And so now we go to Lauren Michaels, right? Had a, has a rule that he repeats all the time. He says, if you look around the room and you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. You, he said, you know, if you look around the room and you, and you think, God, these people are amazing, then you're probably in the right room. <laughs> <laughs> Virtually all supervisors place an emphasis on having someone around them as smart as possible. And they suss this out through their non-conventional interview techniques and by observing them closely during the on-job trial periods. Um, hey, Pez. 
Yes, go ahead. I think there's a very interesting concept here as well about this idea, and we should make a note of this when Sydney comes on the show. The the idea mm-hmm. of being the smartest person in the room. Um, you know, David Ogilvy once said, um, and obviously there were, um, he probably didn't say politically correct at the time, but at the time it was probably fine <clears throat> because there was no, you know, mm-hmm. cancel culture and whatever. Um, but he said if you hire a, a company uh, of people that are bigger than you, you'll end up with a company of giants. And if you hire people that are smaller than you, you'll end up with a company of midgets or dwarfs or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this idea of being the smartest person in the room, um, there is a degree of humility and hubris. There is a degree of security, right, um, or insecurity, wanting to always prove yourself, wanting to always talk the most, wanting to always have the last word. People are just filled with insecurity to always want to prove themselves. That is a natural thing. Um, I mean, we would love people to see us for who we are without having to say, hey, you know what, I'm actually kind of a big deal or I'm kind of important or I'm, I'm not an idiot or I'm smart. Like we, we need validation and self-worth and people to you know, not necessarily to, to, you know, blow smoke up our uh, rear end, but, but validation is so critical. And I was thinking, you know, can you be, first of all, we should ask Sydney again, can you be a super boss if you are the smartest person in the room? And what do you do in that situation? Do you downplay that smartness in favor of someone else to feel that they are, they are the smartest? Um, probably, they are the smartest at something. You can't be the smartest at everything. Maybe you're the smartest at being at not being the smartest of anything, but being, you know, it's the jack of all trades and master of one or master of some. So I think this idea of being the smartest person in the room can be, it can, you could look at it two ways, but also, you know, the idea of intelligence uh, is just critical, but it's different forms of intelligence because as we know, there can be, IQ and EQ and different kinds of Q, right? There can be different kinds of ways people can be street smart and they can be book smart. So intelligence isn't always academic or even based on experience. It can be based on on intuition. It can be just based on on lateral thinking. And uh, it's clear that each one of these super bosses has a different, they all feed and, and, and they all believe in intelligence, but it's a customized and a personalized intelligence. It's not just what works for the industry or for the company, it's what works for them. Right, right. No, they, um, it's very contextualized. You know, like they said, Lauren Michaels, um, or not Lauren Michaels, but Ralph Lauren wanted even the most menial a staffer to have a fashion sense, right? Or fashion intelligence or about them. Right. So, uh, so that's number one, uh, of getting it there. They've got unusual intelligence. A second component of getting it is creativity. Uh, super bosses are looking for employees. They, um, super bosses, basically they say they're not looking for employees who th- think the same way they do. So let's say, you know, um, Ralph Lauren is the super boss. Well, they're not looking someone who thinks like them. Okay, they're looking for employees who like like them tackle problems originally and differently. They say even more supervisors are looking for employees who can actually get somewhere with an original line of thought, who can creatively apply what they know. And so when supervisors talk with prospective employees, they want more than anything else to hear how you think, not how someone else thinks or what is the norm. They want to know how you think. Okay, that's super important. Um, This is why super bosses as diverse as Norman Brinker, Larry Ellison, and Roger Gorman were known to listen intensely when talking with job candidates, expecting to learn something new themselves. So... um, let me see. I, I don't want to move on. Oh, the third component of getting it. So there's three. These are the three components of, you know, what they do uh, as they hire is extreme flexibility. So the first one was um, 
unusual intelligence, and it can be very contextual. The second component of hiring it or how they how getting it is important is creativity. And the third component and last one is extremely flexible. He said, also, although supervisors often hire people with special areas of expertise, they're not usually interested in specialists who can only do one thing. They want a kind of brilliance that can be applied to many sorts of problems. Norman Bringer thought that talented people should be able to handle any position. One of his associates used a sports metaphor to describe his attitude. Norman wasn't a fan of hiring people to play first base, for example. He just wanted to hire a good baseball player. And um, so these are some of the ways they think. Uh, I'm not going to go into the whole uh, soliloquy, um, but I am going to go into, um, let me see here. There was a, a really cool thing. I found they they share a lot of different uh, stories and uh, of people that we all know. Um, okay, uh, they do have they they do talk about the power of feeling unthreatened. So you know they'll create a space safe place. You know, uh, let me see, uh, room for others to shine. That's that's also a good. Topic. They even talk about Miles Davis, who recruited uh, John Coltrane. Um, they said David was so enamored with Coltrane, in fact, that he kept him in his band between 55 and 57, even though the saxophone player was struggling with long-standing heroin addiction. Davis at the time was clean. Davis fired Coltrane in 1957, but took him back in 1958 and continued to play with him for another two years. Seeking out star protégés like this, relishing their success is pretty typical of super bosses. More, moreover, because they expect most people to, who work for them to become stars, they will often tolerate personal problems, eccentricities, and big egos. Um, so on and so forth. Um, that was an, um, they churn better, churn better than we think. Um, so super bosses, they're uniquely capable recruits as business opportunities. They will rarely, uh, they are rarely willing to pass up a candidate on the grounds that she wouldn't fit in. Remember, we, we talk about culture fit. We talk about all these things that in the end, you know, where we seek a culture fit, sometimes we can, what, become a room full of people that, Think the same way. What do they call that? Um, Groupthink, right? <laughs> and, and comment. Anybody wants to come up? Uh, by the way, uh, I noticed a few more people. Thank you, Slick, for uh, coming here, Jen. So, um, if you guys can come up and want to join the conversation, yeah, you, can, you can you can certainly uh, in, invite um, them. And as always, remember, you just have to raise your hand, and um, and you can come up too. Um, Two yeah. things that I picked up, <clears throat> and, you know, as I said, this is uh, what I like about the book read, you know, maybe in, in February um, I'll go back to, to reading or maybe someone else wants to come with a book that they want to read. Um, but um, the things, the, the new thoughts that you added there, Bez, one, one was, this again, this idea of insecurity, <clears throat> and the second was about this idea of fitting in. And... Uh, how important culture fit is. We keep, we talk about it, but, but how do you know, like how, 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 to what extent do we follow through with it? Do we make sure that people are really happy um, in an environment? And I, you know, I keep thinking about politics and I think that I, I just wonder how much productivity is lost due to politics. Of course we can have politics anyway. We can have, you know, um, I've I've seen it as well. I've seen you know politics in a business of two people, even even myself and a business partner. Not now, but in the past, I've had one business partner, and there were politics, because even though the two of us are working together, each one of us has a spouse, has a, has a life partner, and so you end up complaining to your life partner, you know, to your spouse about your business partner, and. And so it becomes political. And politics are just so damaging and dysfunction. But truly it does just come down to this idea of, of um, insecurity. 
I think. And, uh, and just wanting, wanting to be acknowledged and validated for who we are um, and what we do. And, um, you know, and it's, ju- it's just so hard. Like, I wish there was a, a panacea or, a, or an easy answer, I should say. Um, because, you know, on the, again, on the one hand, if everything is just out in the open and out in public, um, you, you know, that that's, can be as bad as everything being in secret. And behind your back, I don't know which one is better. You know that everything is always aired honestly, openly, directly. You know, even if it hurts in the in the open, uh, or um, it's done. Be, you know, it's done privately and secretly, and often behind your back. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know that either of them are actually the answer. Um, what are your thoughts? Um. Well, you know. They super bosses do hire differently, and you know if Sidney Finkelstein's research holds, you know, um, you know unusual intelligence, uh, creativity, and extreme flexibility. I think um, you know in corporate America, one of the things that we sometimes screen for is adaptability, right? So just from list, um, you know, the the Sidney Finkelstein's. Uh, you know, um, I mean, everybody wants to hire brilliant people, right? Uh, but uh, super bosses find them in their, it's very contextual to them. Okay, so I, I can get that. We all want to hire uh, brilliant people. Um, number two, creativity. Um, here's the rub with that. We all want people who creatively solve problems, right? And and you'll you'll go work somewhere and they'll say, yes, we want to do change. We want you to come in here, help us change something or do something right. Um, yet as as soon as you come in, um, people really aren't interested in making change. They, they're more interested in the status quo because change is painful. Change is uh, something that naturally as humans, we're not comfortable with. Right. So. um you know, it's just interesting that, you know, super bosses do demand creativity, right? Or that's what they look for. And then the, the last one of extreme flexibility, you know, um, in the day and age where we look for specialists, <laughs> super bosses looks for the generalist, right? So I'm, I'm, it's interesting just how different they look at stuff versus the mere mortal so uh uh you know i think these are great thoughts and um i'm going to go to chapter three uh, it talks about motivating exceptional people to do the impossible um i, I love this there, there's well I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this one real quick but i'm, I'm gonna go into a, a george lucas story pretty quickly here They said if you walked into Bloomingdale's on the corner of 59th and Lexington in New York City during the early 1970s and proceeded uh, past the rack of suits, slacks, and ties to the center of the men's store, you might have noticed an attractive man in his early 30s inspecting displays of clothing. Another man might have been dutifully assisting him uh, rearranging shirts on a shelf, moving displays of ties from one place to the next. At this time, men's were usually sold according to classification with individual departments for ties, shirts, and suits. That's how J.C. Penney did it. That's how Feline's did it. That's how every local department store did it. And that's how Blooming, Bloomingdale's did it until now. The area Bloomingdale's was visually set off from the rest of the men's section. Like an individual boutique inside the larger department store, it brought together a whole line of clothing items and was designed, designated for one brand, Polo Ralph Lauren. Featured prominently was a new product and casual sporting shirts similar to the old Lacoste shirts people used to wear, the ones with the crocodile insignia. The new shirt was a higher quality than those Lacoste shirts. It was a tiny polo player instead of a crocodile and came with 24 dazzling colors. The polo player and the quality of the material marked the shirt as high-end. 
In fact, the entire boutique embodied what many lower and mid middle class Americans aspire to wealth and distinction. Um, they said that that young, good looking guy checking the wares was none other than Ralph Lauren. Since the early 1970s, he became a fashion icon and a billionaire several times over. Before Lauren, uh, designers made either formal wear or sportswear. Lauren combined the two into a cohesive collection that reflected a new aspirational American lifestyle. He believed that his customers like him wanted different outfits for work, home, and travel. So he brought them together for the first time. He created a mythical world of class and prestige and middle-class customers could buy into simply by wearing the proper clothing, his clothing. A writer for the New York Times once proclaimed Lauren the ultimate producer of completely packaged perfect life. But it may have been designer Joseph Abad who best captured Lauren's contribution not only to fashion but to the American culture. No one has done a greater job of investing Inventing the myth of Ralph Lauren than Ralph Lauren. <laughs> so I'm just going to, um, th- there's some really good stories out of there, but um, you can see, you know, the the thinking they have, you know, the, you know, what was before formal or sportswear. Now he melded that together with what he thought the American culture wanted. So uh, any thoughts on that? Um, let me see. Um, perfect is good enough. So uh, this is where that is. How is that story? Of, well, um, I, I'm looking at what, what Praxim uh, posted, this idea of should, be, uh, should you become an all-rounder or expert, a generalist or a specialist? And um, I think I think kind of you you made that point, and I think it's worth – uh, revisiting, it's worth thinking about this idea of being um, a, a generalist or specialist. Uh, you know, my my feeling actually is both. I think you should be, I think you should be a specialist in something and a generalist in as well. Uh, I I'm that in many respects. I'm certainly a marketing generalist. Um, I I have uh, I'm uh, as I was saying um, with. Um, Sean Kanungo, I, I I know enough to be dangerous, as the as the saying goes. Um, I know enough about enough things to be dangerous. I generally have been pretty good on my toes that I can come up with an answer for anything. Um, and I would joke in a self deprecating way, like when I was you know younger, or even just maybe even a few years ago. Um, I'll give you an opinion um, on anything, even if I don't you know even if I don't know what I'm talking about. There are a lot of people out there that will that will have an opinion on anything. If I if I'm reached out to 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 this day, you know, to oh like CNBC wants you on or CNN or Cheddar wants you on to talk about Chipotle's um, earnings, I'll go on. It's a press opportunity, and and I'll have an opinion. Um, but I'll tell you that at the same time, in my let in my later years, certainly in the last two years. I'm now a little bit more likely to say, you know what, that's actually not my wheelhouse. That's not my area of expertise. Um, maybe you need someone that, that is a little bit, um, maybe you need someone else. But, but the generalist can get me far, right? Can get me, can put it this way, being a generalist will, will, will put me in the race and give me an opportunity to win the race. But being the specialist will help me win the race. And I think you need both. You know, the generalist puts you in a position to win and the specialist allows you to win because you have to be focused in some, you know, capacity. Right now, I am choosing to focus a lot on Web3, which means, you know, can I talk about custom experience? Of course. Can I talk about digital? Of course. I can talk about everything. But, you know, there's certain things where I'm going to uh, I'm gonna just step back. Even within your specialization, you can be a generalist if you think about it. I can say I'm a specialist in Web3, but, but you know, on one hand compared to everything else. But within Web3, I'm a generalist. Um, and I might be more of a specialist on, let's say, NFTs and community than DAOs or DeFi. And so that's another way to think about it too. And it's the ability, I think, to be able to say no. 
DeFi, I'm going to say no to. DAOs, I'm going to say no to. I, I have an opinion. I'm not sure that DAOs work. I'm not sure that, that we're at the right time for DAOs, and I'll tell you why. But, but I'll also be mindful and humble enough to say that my experience with DAOs is limited and limiting. Um, quite frankly, have I even been part of a DAO? No, I haven't been part of a DAO long enough um, to have operated warts and all and seen what works and what doesn't. I came into contact with one a little bit through Constitution DAO. I came into contact with DAO-like objects through Rally.io. But, you know, it, it's the ability, I think, to be honest. If not, be honest with others. It's being honest with yourself. And these days you can be found out pretty quickly too if you're, you know, if you're bullshitting. So those are my thoughts on mm-hmm. just generalist versus specialist and recognizing, mm-hmm. you know, my points are one, that you can have a combination of both. And I think that's the answer. But also within the the concept of being a generalist, you can be a specialist. And within the concept of being a specialist, you can be a generalist. Uh, Praxim, welcome to the stage. Yes, Praxim. Good morning. What say you, my friend? Well, I just uh, was listening to the conversation and happened to come across this uh, short video. It's about 15 minutes from Till Mushoff. And uh, his concept is the specialized generalist, which if you watch it, I, which I highly recommend, he uh, points out that most of us should really target being a generalist with building specializations in it. But the specializations should lead to a goal and not a task. Let me give you an example. So his, his idea is to be, and Jaffe, this goes right, it's very synergistic to what you say. Right, but fundamentally, if you want to be good at a thing like Web three, you have to know about blockchain, and you need to know about community, and you need to know about tokens. And but the idea is that you become specialized enough in each of those uh, multidisciplinary areas to be good at the broader thing, which is Web three, for example. Right, using your your example, Jeff. And so it's always great to finds a little confirmation that other people in the world are thinking about this stuff. And so I ran across this, I don't know how, probably because Google's uh, mm. search, YouTube search is smarter than I am, and put this in front of me and I watch it and it's a, it's, a, it's a nice way to hear somebody else's opinion about it. So, But it goes right hand in hand with the reading this morning, uh, Bez. I, I love that. I, um, I, I, I love what you said with there should be a goal in mind. Right. It's and I think that's where um, a lot of people fail. They 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 chase. um, They don't strategically plan their career. Right. Um, And let's even you could be mid career and still say, okay, I'm going to stop and I'm going to I'm going to have a goal in mind. There's an end to this whatever I'm doing, you know, and uh, I love what you said. It's, it definitely resonates with me and it might not resonate with everybody. Everybody may have a different approach, but um, no, I love that. Um, So we're, we're going into how um, supervisors motivate and um, there's this little bold thing that's perfect. It's good enough. So, so how do super bosses do it? The first thing to know is that all super bosses, even the most supportive nurturers, drive their people exceptionally hard. Everybody knew that Bill demanded results, said um, Donald Blankenship, or Ronald Blankenship, President CEO of the Verde Group, and longtime associate of Bill Sanders. If you were going to work for him, you needed to be prepared to make that the primary focus of your life. Um, Victor Campbell, Senior Vice President of Hospital Corporation of America, remarked of Tommy for Frist, you you were expected to get done what needed to get done and get it done in a timely fashion. Then they go on to Lauren Michaels and uh, Andy Sandberg uh, working for him and and said, remembers after working for Lauren Michaels at Saturday Night Live, acting in movies was a cakewalk. The pressure doesn't really seem that high. You've dealt with this thing that's SNL, which is just this crazy, intense, beautiful pressure cooker. So it goes on that super bosses don't merely want strong performance. 
they expect world-class performance. Um, uh, Larry Ellison, who's, who's the founder of Oracle, they, they said that of him. Um, they, uh, they said, okay, Carmen Policy, he was the former president CEO of the San Francisco 49ers and Cleveland Browns. He said Bill Walsh came to the 49ers with a hunger, a vision, and a strong desire to do more than just coach the team. He wanted to create a dynasty. Bill, um, let me see. And I'm going to keep on that theme here because uh, we keep introducing other people. But um, let me see. Going back to uh, Bill Walsh. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and Bill Walsh, you know, was the architect of the West Coast offense, you know, created quite a dynasty with the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, well, let's let's also talk one. about, let's yeah. also talk about, I mean, you, ma- you made another point there about they work their people hard, right? And, um, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's important, it's, it's clear that being a super boss, um, is the ability to get the best out of your people, but also that doesn't mean that it's a cakewalk, right? It doesn't mean that they're that they're lenient, right? I mean, it it has actually nothing to do with lenient versus strict or firm. You know, it's probably firm but fair. Um, you know, in in it's probably a, a good balance between working hard and working smart, um, but it isn't. It's not easy. It's not meant to be easy. I mean, it's like it's like you know, it's like running a marathon. It's not easy to run a marathon. You have to train. It hurts. It's hard, but it's worth it. Um, and if you have the right training and the right coach, and you know, it, it, and at the end of the day, there is no better feeling than when you've accomplished something that you've really set out to. And of course, part of that is the ability to push you and stretch you and and challenge you to to be your best, to be better, to break out of your comfort zone. But throughout the whole thing. I think that there's probably this. I mean, re- I remember something you said, Bez, either last week or one in, in the kind of intro, is that super bosses don't burn bridges. And I mean, that's just a great benchmark. When you look back at your previous jobs and your previous bosses, and maybe you were the boss, do you have that incredible relationship with all of them? And if the answer is no, then either you weren't a super boss or they weren't a super boss. I mean, there are other, I'm sure there are exceptions and caveats and it's not all a one size fits all. But that is something that I remember throughout this process that really resonated with me, that uh, they don't burn bridges, uh, you know, intentionally or unintentionally. They build relationships that last long after the actual job or career or company comes to an end. And uh, I thought that that was... Interesting, you know, Lorne Michaels has created a dynasty. I think, in a way, he's probably like a, like a like a mafia boss. Um, he has, you know, he's a kingmaker. He has greenlit and produced and underwritten and invested. People that leave SNL uh, become stars, and he is generally you see his fingers. And a lot of people have been fired. Oh, yeah? And a lot of people have been fired from SNL. You know, there are necessary endings. It it can end right. pretty, you know, pretty badly. But but generally, there are you know the relationships continue. And 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 I think the one thing is you know we've looked at SNL. Like SNL is a great case study. You look at it and you're like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, like I don't know where it is today, but it always feels like SNL is done, and it's like, it's like, is this, you know, did they jump the shark with when Will Ferrell left? Did they jump the shark when you know, like, uh, you know, Jimmy Fallon left? Did they jump the shark when you know, and and yet uh, when Tina Fey left, and 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 yet it just continues to invent and reinvent itself. No one is big. They say in, in football, right, in soccer, no one is bigger than the shirt. No one is bigger than the club. No one is bigger than SNL. Um, so it's just, it's very interesting how, you know, whether that is fear, you know, or not, but it seems like people leave SNL, but they don't, but, but whether they want to or not, they never leave Lorne Michaels. Right, right. I wanted to riff on what you're saying, Joseph, which is there's another thing I've noticed a super boss does in my personal experience is 
you can be skipped level away from them and they're still super bosses. So those of you that don't know that lingo, which is you may no longer directly report to them, but they're still in either you can still be in the same company or across companies and they still have uh I don't know, aura is a little too strong of a word, but they still have a uh, boss power that uh is shines through no matter what. Like it you don't have to directly report to these folks. And even if sometimes you get a person in in between you and them, um, you'll find that the super boss overcomes it, but not in a negative way. Oh, yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, you know, it's interesting we're talking about that they push their protégés to excellent, and you tie that back into one of the three things they look for is extreme flexibility, right? Because if they're so demanding, they're going to need someone who's extremely flexible, right? So it's interesting how I'm I'm tying that back in. I know we got four more minutes. I'm gonna um, uh, end here. Of uh, we still just made it through um, the second chapter that I wanted to cover. So the ladder of confidence. Um, so um, they say it isn't all this hard charging, whip cracking perfectionism. Ultimately, it isn't. So they ask the question: Isn't all this hard charging, whip cracking perfectionism ultimately counterproductive? Doesn't it lead to employee burnout, disenchantment? And they say in many traditional high-performance cultures, that is exactly what happens. Investors and boards apply pressure at the top of the organization to boost productivity. And this pressure cascades downward as bosses at each level tighten the screws on their reports. Managers are told they have a number to hit. They hit that number, and as a reward, the target goes up the following year. (laughs) <laughs> when they hit that number, the target goes up even more. The demands just never seem to end. And uh, leaving employees feeling like they were on an endless treadmill. You're punished if you succeed. You're punished even more if you don't. Add in the pressure to be always on. Thanks to mobile technology, it's easy to understand why large percentages of employees report that they dislike their jobs and eventually lead them. So they say some employees at super boss-led companies do drop out, but those that remain respond to the constant and continual expanding pressure by developing an even deeper emotional bond with their super boss. That's because even though super bosses keep that pressure up, they also inspire performance, emboldening employees to push themselves up. Super bosses get that individuals, even the most driven and talented, accomplish so much more when high expectations comes with a message of possibility. They understand that people will work their hardest to become bigger, better, tougher, more resourceful, and more creative when they first see themselves as these things. And they sense that it is their purpose paramount job as a leader to inject a strong and unforgettable sense of the possibility in their workforce. So that this is something that they inspire that self-confidence into their protege. They do drive them hard. Um, you know, and we're talking a lot about uh, Lauren Michaels uh, today. Um, uh, George Lucas was the same. Uh, there was another nice story about him, but we're, we are running out of time. I just sort of want to, respect um we'll pick it up next week it's 858 yeah um any final any final words from the panel up here of uh, what we just covered well i i mean i must say i i love i love the discussion and the whole idea is the whole idea is to to get a glimpse an essence a, a um you know a, a taste of the book and then the discussions that come out and i mean i think if you think about it this is what's like missing in the in the whole publishing industry is that we we have book clubs but we haven't really like i i mean the ability to actually like deliver a, a book club powered with like a community flavor is just so awesome um because you realize that the writing on the page and as an author I can tell you is just really a conversation starter as an author you want people discussing you you want people disagreeing you want you want the book to be just that to be a, a, a not not the end of the conversation, but the beginning of the conversation. 
I also just want to just give a few quick updates today. Um, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I'm delivering a webinar, the Encore presentation from CES. And um, and you can see the links in the cafe chat. I've also tweeted in LinkedIn. If, you, if you're able to attend, that would be awesome. If you're able to share it and retweet, etc., that would be amazing as well. Um, I would love to... I'd love to get a good size audience, um, and uh, and and it's a it's a really great um, little summary and account of how I see Web three. What I'm doing with Web three might be kind of second nature to all of you that are here today, um, but also just kind of contextualizing it. Remember, this presentation was delivered to brands. I'm also going to attempt to deliver a Po app today. Um, so that's going to be interesting. There's a five-minute window where the, the, the minting window will be open. And so you have to kind of like, <laughs> let's see if it works. So far, there's always technical issues. Uh, and then the final thing is I should start emailing people today with all the instructions with respect to Jaffe Coin um, and, and how that's going to play out. It's, it's very – the whole process is super, super interesting um, in terms of how it's going to play out I don't know if, if you've been watching, but Rally's up 50%, 5-0, 50%. I have no idea why, uh, but it is. 53.2, it's at point, and it's at 0.013 of a cent. It's 1.3 cents, um, and it's up 50. It was like, I don't know, it's insane. Like, I've even looked at it thinking like, should I just sell it all now and then wait for it to drop down again and then buy it back? And I'm like, nope, I'm not touching it. Not touching it. Uh, I'm just going to uh, continue to like play the long game here. And as far as the Jaffe coin is concerned, you know, it's very interesting because a couple things came out of this, especially for you coin lovers and coin holders out there. Uh, there, there are two points. One is I think that that the actual business model of having a creator coin is not to make any money from it as a creator, but actually to make money uh via proxy. And what I mean by that is, for example, if you're able to use the coin as access and, and, and to be part of a community, and that helps you grow your audience, and that itself attracts sponsorship and appearances and representation, um, etc., that to me is almost the money-making opportunity. You know, because what you're doing is the token is just essentially the the way that you interact and engage and incentivize and reward and acknowledge your community, um, but but itself the token is just really an engagement token. Remember what is crypto? Crypto is a transaction token that allows you to build on and operate on the blockchain. Well, by definition, a creator coin should be also a transactional or an engagement token that allows you to connect with your fans, your friends, your followers, um, etc. And, 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 and I'm kind of applying that approach as well. The other thing that's interesting is in going backwards and forwards and talking to the developers, um, you know, what becomes very clear is the, the first person to buy and the first person to sell right, benefit the most. So think about that for a second. If you're the first to sell, you will benefit the most. If you're the last to sell, you will benefit the least. If you're the first to buy, you'll benefit the most. If you're the last to buy, you'll benefit the least. So it really just depends on your perspective. And really, what I've realized is what you want to do is you want to create an economy, you want to create an ecosystem where you only have the right people in it for the right reasons. You don't have anyone in it for the wrong reasons. You don't want whales. You don't want investors. You don't want day traders. You don't want degens. You just want real people, fans, and 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 colleagues, and and you know fellow builders. That's what you want. Um, and what I love about where I am right now is the fact that everyone who's with me chose to stay with me. Everyone else is gone. So if anyone else wants to come in, they can, um, but they're coming in where they're, they're, have, they're having to, to buy their way in, not earn their way in. And I love that. You know, uh, and, and I hope that this small economy that grows, this small ecosystem, the whole Jaffe ecosystem, will just represent um, people that want to move together. You know, as, as the old saying goes, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Um, and so 
over the course of the next two to three days, maybe even over the weekend, um, if you had Jaffe Coin and you sent it to me, you'll be getting an email from me. Uh, the process is quite, it's, it's not that complicated. You actually go into uh, the Joseph Jaffe is not famous Discord server. You open up a ticket underneath, um, I'll tell you exactly what the channel is called. Uh, it is called, da, 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 at the top it's called Migrate Your Jaffe. You open up a ticket. In that, you basically will send your Solana uh, you know, phantom wallet, your public uh, address. Um, it, it's a good way of doing it because it's all kind of like you know documented, like audited in a sense. That's why rather than just send an email, you do it by opening up a ticket. And then once you've done that, I send you your new Jaffe. And then there is um, another channel called Verify React Jaffe Coin where you actually will now um, get your new roles. And, uh, and the roles are uh, commensurate with what they used to be. Um, I, th- I think we, we added uh, a new one, um, which is called, um, I'll tell you what it's called now. It's very, very interesting, this whole process. I'm super happy um, to have actually got there. But wow, it, took, it, it, it certainly did, uh, did take a while. Um, so let me, just, uh, let me just read it to you. And uh, just so that you know, now I've got to find it. Um, oh, I haven't sent it yet, so hold on. Uh, it is, yeah, it is viewer, fan, insider, VIP, and super fan. And it will be 10 coin, 100 coin, 250 coin, 500 coin, and 1,000 coin because there are multiples of 10, which is kind of still the planned um, exchange rate. So interesting stuff. You know, the next chapter begins, um, you know, uh, a model where I will... Um, create a combination of utility based on hold, based on, you know, hold and verified or validated, based on redemption, and then based on, uh, and then introducing NFTs and POAPs at some point as well. Um, and we'll see, we'll see where it leads. So I just wanted to give you that quick little update. I know we're a little over. Bez, thank you for continuing uh, to uh, lead the way with an amazing, amazing um, glimpse into super bosses. Praxim, thank you for sharing um, that YouTube link. And uh, of course, uh, DT, Jensa, uh, Slick, and Christopher, amazing having you here as well. And um, oh, uh, Jensa asks, it's, it's bit.ly forward slash not famous discord because I'm not famous and nor is my discord. Bit.ly forward slash not famous discord is the Joseph Jaffe's not famous discord. And, um, yeah, have an amazing day, everyone. If you're listening to this on demand at some point today uh, or in the future, um, come and join us one day, and, and, uh, and, and we look forward to hosting you here. I will stop the recording, and I will see you tomorrow for No Agenda Friday. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.